Hey everybody, welcome to Cinemusts, the podcast where we debate the must-see status of the films included in the book A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, and listeners decide if they should be included on the list of essential cinema. I'm antique weaponry collector Mike Emmel, and I'm very excited to welcome my guest host for today's show. You guys know him as one of the co-hosts of our brother podcast, 1001 by One, as well as the host of our previous episode on The Wicker Man and Don't Look Now. He's a man who's deadly with any marital aid you can imagine. It's Ian Woodington. Ian, welcome back, man. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. I love the uh, the little shout out there about the uh, certain marital aid. Sometimes the dad jokes I come up with better with than the others. I'm kind of proud of that one. How are you doing, man? It has been a long time since we were talking British horror with Wicker Man and Don't Look Now. What's been going on? I, not a whole lot, man. Just plugging along with Adam on the Thousand and One by One, and uh, we've got a couple of great shows coming up that I'm really excited about. Um, and I'm really excited. Hopefully, I'm I'm becoming something of a resident English film expert for you. You know, we've done Wicker Man and Don't Look Now, and now here we are back with Lockstock. So anytime you want to talk British cinema, you know who to go to. I, I really do because you you're a guy who knows what you're talking about. Um, before we get going on that though, I really I want to plug a thousand one by one. In my intro, I called you guys our brother podcast. Why on earth would I do that? Uh, because we are both using the same book as the foundation of our our study and our our movie journey. We use the thousand and one by one movies you uh, sorry thousand and one movies you must see before you die. Adam and I we just kind of pick them apart and decide whether or not they deserve to be in the book. And you guys do. Excellent work. Um, I've been a big fan of the output recently. The um, we, we talked about it a couple weeks ago when we had Adam on to talk about In Bruges, but that the Gleaners and I episode, fine, fine work. I still haven't revisited the movie, which I remember being pleasantly surprised, but I really appreciated the discussion. Um, what do you guys have coming up this week? Last Friday will have been uh, Children of a Lesser God, the Marley Matlin, uh, William Hurt film, which uh, we we did take that film to task, and I think deservedly so. Thank you. Uh, we've got this Friday coming up uh, Andre Rubliev, which uh, if anybody remembers our very early Stalker episode, Adam and I fell head over heels in love with Andre Tarkovsky, and it was an absolute joy to revisit him 80 episodes later i don't think we're going to be able to wait quite so long i think 80 episodes was was too much of a gap but we're also in a sort of paradigm of yeah we don't want to we don't want to wait that long but he's also only got four in the book so we don't we don't we don't want to run out of him too quickly either what are his other two is it solaris and the mirror that yeah that's correct there's a club of filmmakers on on our show that it's uh, like I, I we got to do episodes on them so uh, he's one of them Bergman's another guy I'm it's killing me we've never done a Billy Wilder um, so you guys are giving me my, my Tarkovsky fix and I'm ashamed to admit I've never seen Andre Rubliov so not to give anything away but thumbs up thumbs down on Andre Rubliov there is a mammoth amount to unpack and I have no idea whether we did it justice or not, but it's a film that I just cannot wait. Like you mentioned Bergman, like Cries and Whispers, it's a film that I know is going to stay with me for decades and I'm going to spend you know, a lot of time revisiting it and reshaping how I feel about it as I sort of age and mature, hopefully. Well, well, maybe instead of having you back for, for British movies, if you ever need like a, a round two or a second chance on something like that, like a Tarkovsky movie, man, you're always welcome back. Oh, no, I would love that. If you want to if you want to tackle Rubliov together, I'd be happy to, to have a, a third perspective on it. We'll see if my brain can handle it. <laughs> I, I haven't had the best track record lately. I couldn't even handle sideways. So I don't know if I, I can quite delve into Tarkovsky yet. <laughs> But yeah, man, it's it's great to have you back. I highly recommend everybody go check out 1001 by 1. It's it's double the coverage you can get on a weekly basis if you're a fan of our show. 
Follow those guys. They are always covering interesting movies, having great discussions. Ian, where can people find you guys if they're not already following you? Well, we launch out of Podomatic, so we get dropped on all of the big boys. Uh, Spotify, Apple, uh, uh, was it Apple Podcast? Now it's not iTunes anymore. See, that's that's how much Something I keep like up that, with it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we're 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 all over the place. Wherever wherever you get your podcasts, I've been using Pocket Cast lately, and I know we're on there. Okay, so wherever wherever you listen to podcasts, just search for a thousand and one by one. You can't miss. In fact, if you can't find a thousand and one by one on the podcast uh, platform you prefer. Uh, head on over to Adam and Ian's Twitter or Facebook pages at a thousand one by one. Let them know. They'll find a way to get to you. Thanks, man. I appreciate the plug. Absolutely. It's, it's not, I'm not just blowing steam. I really do love your guys show and it's always a pleasure to have you guys back on. So thanks for coming to lend your talents, your expertise. This is going to be a fun episode. So welcome back, man. It's been too long and everybody else who's listening. Welcome back to you. We are glad to have you guys back because the mission that our show is on is to decide which movies truly deserve a spot on that list of essential cinema. And Ian and I, we just can't do that on our own. So to determine if tonight's movie is going to earn a place on that list, we're going to leave it up to all of you to cast your votes on the polls. We're going to put on our various social media pages later this week on Friday. So if you're not already doing so, make sure you're following us on Twitter, Instagram, and or Facebook. You can find us on all of them simply by searching for Cinemusts. You do that, you can cast your vote on the must-see status of tonight's movies. Movie. I'm still doing that. We haven't talked about two movies in one episode in forever, and I'm still saying movies. But while you all make sure you're following us on whichever of those platforms you prefer, I'm going to give you the rundown of how you're going to cast your vote this Friday, the 26th. So each movie we discuss is going to get voted into one of three categories. There is Cinemust, which is a movie you recommend absolutely everybody see at some point in their lifetime. There's Cinetrust, which is a movie you recommend to some people, a niche group, maybe a lot of people, but it's just not for everybody. And then there's a Cinebust, which whether the movie's good or bad, it's a movie you don't recommend to anybody. There's just other stuff out there, better ways to spend their time. So Ian and I are going to run tonight's film through that ringer to see what we think. Of course, it will be up to all of you listening to decide ultimately which category tonight's movie is going to land in. But uh, Ian, you, you've teased at it already. What's the movie that you picked for your triumphant return and why'd you choose it? So uh, today we are talking about Guy Ritchie's directorial debut from 1998, Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. Um, this film holds a, a very special place in my heart. I was very excited to see it on your list because it seems like your list is all-encompassing. Uh, you don't just stick with whatever the newest revision is of the book. Your list includes everything that has been in the 1001 at some point. So Correct. I'm assuming this must have been in a very early edition, if not the very first edition of 1001, uh, 1001 Movies You Must See. Yeah, I think so. The, the very first edition that I bought, I don't know exactly what edition it was. It was the one that had Jack Nicholson from The Shining on the cover, but I don't even remember it being in that one. So I think you might be right. It must have been like a, a first or second edition, and then it was one right. of the first to get chopped. Yeah, no, uh, I think the Jack Nicholson cover was the second revision. So yeah, it had to have been the first first edition. Wow. Okay. Um, but yeah, that's that's correct. Our list, it's any movie that has ever been in the book, whether it's out of the current edition or not. So interesting you kind of just made me realize like our very first Guy Ritchie movie on the podcast we still have not talked about an Andre Tarkovsky or Ingmar Bergman movie but Guy Ritchie let's do it man <laughs> you said you picked it because it holds a special place in your heart what is that well that actually I don't want to jump ahead and mess with the format at all but that's my my first reason for choosing the the category that I voted into it's really uh I usually don't find myself, I find myself becoming a little impatient when it comes to nostalgia these days, but I do have a lot of nostalgic feelings, a very, a, an almost like a sense memory when it comes to this film. It transports me back 
to a very specific time and place. Well, uh, I'm sorry to fast forward us through the format so much. We'll we'll leave that as kind of a tasty nugget to tantalize the audience. Before we go into official vote giving and reason giving, what's the movie about? We have four sort of guys that are they're down on their luck a little bit. They're, they're striving to make ends meet. We have uh, Ed, Soap, Bacon, and Tom. Uh, they get a thousand pounds a hundred thousand pounds together 25 grand each uh so that ed who is this sort of card shark amongst them can go and play in this underground poker game this game of three card brag which uh, could potentially you know double triple quadruple their investment and uh things go quite wrong we find out that the guy running the game hatchet harry has alternative motives and he wants to put ed as far in debt as he possibly can and he ends up pressuring ed to lose half a million pounds to him and so now it's about finding the money in seven days otherwise his very uh intimidating associate barry the baptist will take a finger from each of them for every day that they are late and the film weaves in and out these great um uh, this great cast of supporting characters and these people that weave in and out of each other's lives in a very Pulp Fiction-esque style. And I'm sure we'll talk about the Tarantino connection oh, yeah. as we go through the episode. For sure, for sure. Okay, that's that's a really solid plot summary, man. So um, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I'm forgetting my own show format. But we're right now, we're totally spoiler-free. So you guys, if you haven't seen Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels, hang with us for a minute. After that plot summary, I'm going to ask Ian exactly what category he's voting the movie in. We've already got a taste of his first reason. I'll do the same. From there, if you haven't seen the movie, we'll give you a spoiler warning so you can pause the episode and go check it out. Um, if that plot summary did tantalize you to go watch the movie or rewatch the movie, as far as where you can find it right now, I could not find it on any streaming service, um, pretty much anywhere where you're getting digital video rentals. So if you're on Prime Video, YouTube, iTunes or Apple Movies, whatever it is now, like you were saying, Ian, I don't know. Anywhere you're renting movies, it's it's pretty much four bucks across the board. Um, so that is where you can find it as I did. So Ian, you kind of gave us your first reason, uh, but we didn't reveal your official vote. Cinema, Cinetrust, Cinebust, where are you going to let this one slide? So I'm having the same moral dilemma that you and Adam had a couple of weeks ago on In Bruges. In my heart mm -hmm. of hearts, I love this film so dearly, and I have I have showed it to anybody that will give me two hours of my time, much like In Bruges and another British film I love a lot, Dog Soldiers. Anybody that will give me any any length of time, I'll I'll try and coerce them into seeing this film. But I know that the the British gangster film, especially with the contents of, of this one, it's not for everybody, which my wife reminds me about quite a lot. She is uh she has the patience of a saint, the number of uh British gangster films and, and British films in general that I've shown and and most of them she enjoys. I mean she's a huge fan of Sexy Beast and uh, 44 inch chest, those two in particular I know she loves, but the, the British gangster films, they can be grating sometimes, and I get it, so I do have to go Cinetrust. I will I will respect that this is sort of a niche genre or niche subgenre. Okay, very fair. So um, I don't know if that that first reason you gave was, was verbatim about your nostalgia, but this your chance to make it official. It's not a movie you recommend to everybody, but you've got three reasons why. Can you lay them on us? Uh, so yeah, again, the nostalgia factor, as I said, this film takes me back and I'll, if you'll excuse me, I'll get a, a little personal. Uh, I had a, a, a childhood friend I was very close to. His name was coincidentally also Adam. 
unfortunately, he uh, took his own life on New Year's Eve of 2011, and this was this was this was what we did growing up. Like I spent pretty much every weekend with him for three years straight when we were in uh, like secondary school, which is you know ages uh, years like seven, eight, and nine. And this is this is what we did. We watched movies that at that age really we shouldn't have been watching uh sexy beast i already mentioned that one gangster number one uh snatch lockstock and we would just watch them over and over and over again and just quote them ad nauseum to each other so this this movie this movie is is very very personal to me and it's it's a movie that i when i watch it i i still kind of feel connected to him in a way oh that's great that is like the highest praise i could think to lump uh lump on any art form no it, it and that's that's what any that's what art should do it should transport you and and make you feel and and make you emote and that's i mean this is not the obvious choice i i wouldn't exactly call lockstock high art but it it touches yeah. me and it and it does give me it, the feels right i mean i mean that's that goes beyond making you know not to put words in your mouth for this reason but i think that goes beyond like oh it's a movie i liked when i was younger like this is a thing that connects you to a time and a place and a person who very sadly is is no longer with us so i think that's freaking fantastic man um i i hate to to bulldoze through i wonder what the other two reasons are i'm already like holy cow this is so much more amazing than i thought this conversation was going to be well you know, in the in the wake, my second reason is really in the wake of Pulp Fiction, we had a, a somewhat of a revolution in film with the advent of people like Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez, Kevin Smith, you know, all those guys that, yeah, unfortunately, they are connected very much to Weinstein. But if we can say that Weinstein did give us anything good, it was probably these three guys. And in the wake of Pulp Fiction, there was an absolute myriad of of imposters and people trying to sort of take over and, and well not take over but the people trying to to emulate what Tarantino did and and most of them failing miserably I mean I've got a whole list of films uh knockoffs like knock around guys confidence albino alligator very bad things suicide king smoke and aces and all of them I mean they all have the redeeming qualities in the way but they're all really pale comparisons of Tarantino's style and I think Lockstock is one of the rare imitators I, I hate to use that word for lack of a better one but it is one of the rare imitators that i think can hold a candle and 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 it sort of punches above its weight to go hey you know it's not just tarantino that can pull this off look at what we're doing across the pond here we can we can roll with the punches and deliver you something just as good if not better than pulp fiction oh okay heavy words all right and what's reason number three uh reason number three i went back and forth on a, on a lot of things with this but it is it is the characters, all of them. I there isn't a single character in this film that I don't. And, and again, empathy isn't the right word because it's hard to empathize with a lot of these, you know, shady characters. But they all, they all could dip into caricature. And there, we could maybe go through the finer points and find out which ones do and don't slip into into caricature. But I all, they all feel very, very real. And the dialogue, I think, even though they're in extraordinary circumstances, the dialogue rings true to me and these guys i i feel like these are guys that you could bump into in late 90s london okay and and you would know well i mean i wouldn't know specifically I, i'm not going to pretend that i i know anything about the gritty grimy underworld of london in fact i've only been to london once when i was very very young other than that well, I, you know, hang I'm on. A, we, I'm, we got to put a full stop on the episode when we talked about this you assured me this was basically a documentary of your adolescence <laughs> and now you're going to dial that back 
Oh, I wish. I, I wish I could say that my upbringing wasn't the, the safe, somewhat suburban life of a kid living in, in West Midlands, England. I mean, I'm I'm shocked, man, because, you know, Goodfellas pretty much captures what it was like for me to grow up in suburban Utah in the 90s. So yeah, right. <laughs> now, now, don't get me wrong. You know, I, I can be a bit of a hard case. I've had my odd scrap here or there, but I definitely have not stood around selling moody goods on street corners. <laughs> Okay, so my last question to you, um, Cinetrust, it's a movie you're saying it's for a niche group, it's not one you recommend to absolutely everybody, but it's for a certain group of people. Who are the people you absolutely wholesale recommend Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels to? Well, you mentioned Goodfellas. If you're if you're a Scorsese fan, uh, particularly of his sort of crime output, if you're a Tarantino fan, uh, if you're just a fan of naughty gangsters doing naughty gangster shit, you are going to have... An incredible time in this film. Okay. I guess that uh, with my three reasons, that brings us to you, Michael. What are you voting this into and why? Okay, I'm I'm with you. This is a sin of trust for me as well. I definitely don't have the connection to this movie you do. This is only my second time watching it, but I had a lot of fun watching it last night. Um, there's definitely a group of people I do recommend it to, but it is nowhere near like the, the upper level essential cinema to get it a cinema must for me. So my three reasons, the first one is is that wild and winding plot that the movie features, because to me, that's the star. I'm really excited to talk in spoilers about the characters. Your third reason is the characters, because to me, like, I'm not saying these are bad characters, but there's not really, there aren't really human beings in this story you latch onto. What I find most enjoyable is just how you, what you'd mentioned, this plot just twists and turns over itself, and it's very tight and ludicrous in a very fun way. And that's that's both a selling point for the movie and also maybe something that gets it into sin of trust territory is if you're looking for anything beyond that at the moment before we have the spoiler conversation i'm not really seeing anything much deeper there um my second reason is uh pretty much identical to yours i think this is one of the more successful pulp fiction knockoffs you you said you were loath to use the word imitation and i'm going a step further and saying it's a, a knockoff um but i i'm with you i've looked at that same list of movies um i'm not usually one to self-promote a lot but if anyone who's a fan of the show has not listened to our episode with um, Adam St. John, the other co-host of 1001 by 1 on Memento and Pulp Fiction, I highly recommend it. That is one of the episodes of ours I'm the most proud of. And one of my uh, reasons for cinemusting Pulp Fiction was to me, it felt like the last truly revolutionary movie. And this was a big part of that was that like it's the last movie where like everybody was trying to be Pulp Fiction and pretty much all of them, with with the exception of a couple of a handful of movies, you know, kind of stood up on their own and I don't think anybody ever came up to the level of Pulp Fiction but this one is the one that it is a Pulp Fiction knockoff and I'm fine with it like it's good it's fun there are areas in it in which I think it's trying too hard but I'm not getting bent out of shape about it because enough of the movie does work um and then my my third reason this is this is maybe really petty but this one hit me the hardest. This one has to do with cinematography. My third reason is this movie's visually striking. This is definitely a Guy Ritchie film. He is getting his style out there. I think this is a hideous movie, and this is almost solely related to the color palette, and that drives me insane. So I, I'll leave it there. We'll talk more about it in spoilers, but it's it's just a brown movie, and I just don't like movies where the whole color palette is just brown and yellow. So if that bugs you, um, we will definitely address that because I will I will have some compare and contrasting between uh, various versions that are out there and available. Perfect. Maybe I just watched the wrong version. So 
Um, yeah, and, and for me, the group of people I do recommend it to, it's pretty much the same group as you. Like, anyone who is a crime movie junkie, like, it's super fun. Anyone who likes Pulp Fiction, like I said, this one's not near those heights, but it is an imitator that I think is fine. It's good. It's a, it's a fun movie night. I could see this playing as, like, in, in the days of the the junior high sleepovers, those movies we weren't really supposed to be watching, this one would play, like, gangbusters. It's a ton of fun. It is wild, not incredibly deep, but I think it's just a fun time. So, Ian, before we get going into spoilers to back all this stuff up, is there anything else spoiler-free you want to say to, to drum up some interest in the movie? No, man, let's let's get to it, because otherwise Barry the Baptist is going to come around and start chopping off fingers. <laughs> God, and I would flee in a heartbeat from that guy. Um, okay, so if, if uh, what we've said has intrigued you to watch Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, Ian and I recommend it to you if you're into the gangster movies, into the post-Pulp Fiction era of... Uh, wacky dialogue and crazy plot twists. If not, you can maybe give it a pass. But from here on out, we're going to be spoilers for Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Right, let's sort the buyers from the spires, the needy from the greedy, and those who trust me from the ones who don't. Because if you can't see value here today, you're not up here shopping, you're up here shoplifting. You see these goods, never seen daylight, moonlight, Israelite, fanny by the gaslight. Take a bag, come on, take a bag. I took a bag home last night, because me a lot more than £10, I can tell you. Anyone like jewellery? Look at that one there. Handmade in Italy, hand stolen in Stepney. It's as long as my arm, I wish it was as long as something else. Don't think because these boxes are sealed up, they're empty. The only man who sells empty boxes is The Undertaker. And by the look of some of you lot here today, I make more money with me measuring tape. Here, one price. £10. Did you say £10? Are you deaf? That's a bargain. I'll take one. Squeeze in if you can. Left leg, right leg. Your body will follow. They call it walking. You want one as well, darling? You do. That's it. They're waking up. Treat the wife. Treat somebody else's wife. It's a lot more fun if you don't get caught. All right, Ian. So where I think we should start with the conversation is where we have identical common ground because we both are talking about this movie in terms of it being an imitation of Pulp Fiction. And and to me, that's... um. That's a mixed bag. That's like, oh, this this is one of the few that works. This is, you know, this is a gross point blank kind of movie. It's like, oh, it is trying to be Pulp Fiction, but that's okay. It's not trying too hard to be Pulp Fiction. You, it sounds like you're actually a little kinder on it in this regard. Did I read you right there? Yeah, I would, I would, I would think so. I think it, I will go so far. I like to, you know, you've listened to enough shows. I like to have incendiary opinions. I like to, to poke poke the bear wherever possible and you know i know tarantino fans are gonna are probably gonna dislike this comment but i i do genuinely believe that it is as as uh, as an englishman it is our pulp fiction i think it stands alongside i think it really holds its own against there are things about it that i actually like more than than pulp fiction and i think it's more of a Ooh. pulp fiction can can take a little bit out of you not just because of its its running time but because of a lot of its content and i think that this is much more of a casual watch like i'd be more i'd be more inclined if i just need like an easy friday night whatever guilty pleasure or comfort movie okay. or what have you I'd, I'd throw this on i think before i throw lock stock on and i think that's probably gonna be the hot take of the episode perhaps Absolutely. But, but what you say makes sense if you're looking for lighter, fair, because to me, that's the difference. I'll stand in for the, the angry Tarantino fans once you said that, because I'm just like, how could you say this is even on the same level as the masterpiece of Pulp Fiction? But to be fair, on my letterbox list where I'm ranking all the movies we cover on the show, Pulp Fiction sits at number 10. So definitely going in with a stack deck here. But to me, yeah, like Pulp Fiction's thing is like, well, Pulp Fiction's a movie it's very easy to say isn't about anything, but um, 
I think it's it's about a lot of things, and and kind of what you're saying makes sense. Is there's a lot of heavy stuff in Pulp Fiction that could wear you down, and if you need something easy breezy that has the same kind of feel, the same kind of energy, not as tight a dialogue, but it gets the job done. Like Lockstock is a fantastic substitute, I think, and that's that's also kind of um, why my point. I recommend the people who like like this wild and winding plot. It fits in there too because it's also kind of a, a Pulp Fiction knockoff in that regard. The, the intertwining storylines and these crazy things that seem inconsequential that come back later the big one for me is the guy that runs screaming out of the bar on fire and that great reveal of how he got to be on fire when we meet um roy breaker i i think is really really fun but as i said on the pulp fiction episode though it's it's funny because pulp fiction's thing when it came out like one of the big things that made it a hot movie was like it's the movie where everything's out of order like the stories go completely out of chronological order and now, to me, that's like the least interesting thing about Pulp Fiction. Whereas Lockstock, like I think the way that it plots remains like something that, that is a major draw for it. Yeah, I think Richie set himself a more difficult task. And now there's there's been a lot of back and forth. I don't know exactly what's true or not, but it is said that Tarantino maybe did in, intend for Pulp Fiction to be linear, and it's the Weinstein liked to claim credit that it was his idea to break it up because you can't have John Travolta dead at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Is is I've I've heard a couple of different things, yay nay, one way or the other, but I think it's it like you said the the cross the uh, the the out of the out of order portion of the 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 fact that it is out of order, I think is the least interesting thing about Pulp Fiction now, and it could almost be considered a gimmick of sorts, a, a crutch to lean on. Whereas, you know, Lockstock has to maintain a forward-driven narrative. I don't know. I, I think I'm, I'm driving at something that I'm not quite getting to there, but... No, well, well, that's that's what makes me okay with it as a Pulp Fiction knockoff, is like, it is a linear narrative. That, that there's, honestly, where it's more of a Pulp Fiction knockoff to me is not necessarily in, the, like, the crazy intertwining stories. It's more in its dialogue, and to me, there are just a lot of scenes where it's trying... It, it falls back into that list of movies that you were kind of rattling off of movies that it's like, you're trying way too hard to have, like, a five-minute scene of dialogue with peppy dialogue that doesn't really go anywhere the one that sticks out to me and i can't ever keep these two guys apart but i can't remember if it's winston or the other w the the weed dealers and they're having the conversation when we first meet them about like why do we have a cage why yeah between uh, winston and 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 jay yeah yeah and 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 to me that's the scene where it's that's that's the royale with cheese right it's like you're you're trying way too hard to draw out this this scene to be like tarantino and you know it's that one doesn't bother me a ton because it's kind of a drop in the pan. Most of the time when the movie is kind of being a little overly peppery with its dialogue, it's fine to me. And and to me, honestly, I, I kind of wanted to get your pick or your take on this as an Englishman is to me, it, it was kind of refreshing to say like, well, this is the English version of Pulp Fiction. It's not just Americans trying to do what is already an American movie in Pulp Fiction. It's because I really like the scene where we have the subtitles when we're hearing the story of what Rory Breaker did. <laughs> and the guy is talking and underneath we're seeing like what he's actually saying i think that's actually really funny that's the, that's funny that's uh that's my major my big major nitpick with the movie oh, go- is i wish that scene wasn't wasn't subtitled i you know, what i what i really love are, are aaron sorkin or david mamet scripts where we're just kind of mm. dropped into a world and we are forced to sort of play catch up and 
and these are the characters. We have to accept them as they are and just kind of go with them. This is the way they act and speak. Just go with it. We're not going to give you any explanation for it. And that's the subtitling of the Cockney rhyming slang scene is it's kind of it's kind of cheating to me in a bit, in, in a way. So, where... so I have a little story that might at first enrage you, but then make make you happy. So I was watching the movie last night, and it's it's thick Cockney accent. So there came a point where I was like, it's not that I can't understand them or hear them, but I'm going to get a lot more if I turn subtitles on. So I turn subtitles on. So while that scene's playing, the subtitles are blocking out the subtitles that are in that scene. So I never actually saw what they're subtitling it for. I was just seeing like what he's actually saying. And I followed along like fairly well. So I enjoyed it. I, I could keep up with the story it's going on visually. So you might be right that it probably plays just as well, but maybe it's maybe it's just a fun, self-aware joke about how an American audience is maybe not going to understand what the hell this guy is saying. Well, it was that scene was even subtitled on its UK release, and that's something that Guy Ritchie caught a lot of flack for. It's like, what, why do you need to subtitle this? We know what he's saying. We know what Cockney rhyming slang is. <laughs> um, let's talk about him. So... In your personal opinion, this this is his breakout movie. Do you find this to be an assured, confident breakout? Or is this still a movie where he's kind of getting a feel for his voice? Like, I've honestly never talked to you once during our friendship about Guy Ritchie. Lay, lay on me, like, do you think this is an outstanding breakout movie? Or does he still have to feel his way through some things? I do think it is an outstanding breakout. And in a lot of the behind the scenes stuff, when you, when people were to, and again, who knows how much of it is true, because in a lot of these EPK featurettes, everybody is just talking about how much they loved everybody else, right? But right. Uh, Trudy, Trudy Styler, especially, who is, uh, she's married to Sting. That's why Sting is in the movie. Uh, they had seen his, his, um, his short film, The Hard Case, which is available on YouTube, but the audio on it is messed up, so I wouldn't recommend watching it's it. It's terrible. It's yeah. it's bad. It's not good. Uh, she especially talked about his confidence and his self-assurance and that he knew exactly the type of film that he wanted to make. He had it storyboarded. He had a vision. I, I feel like he was fairly confident straight out of the gate. Obviously, I can't speak for him. I'm sure he was nervous as hell taking on a million pound budget, sure. you know, first time feature director. But he it does feel very self-assured. It does feel very confident in a way that something like Requiem for a Dream, Darren Aronofsky's second feature, that is a movie that doesn't strike me as a film made by a second time director. It feels so accomplished and confident and as somebody who is so in tune with their craft. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to say that Lockstock is, is necessarily at that level, but it definitely smacks of somebody who is very confident and very self-assured and, and knows what they want. The problem is, is that what followed after Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels is Guy Ritchie, he, he had struck gold, he had a style of his own, he made a great movie, and now, you know, he hit the glass ceiling right away. So yeah. what, what I find is very interesting is that a lot of, and I don't want to generalize too much, but a lot of Americans that I talked to, they saw Snatch first, and so they prefer Snatch. Mm -hmm. A lot of English people, we saw Lock Stock first, and so we prefer Lock Stock. And it is Snatch <laughs> is Snatch is very derivative of of Lock Stock. But if it's the first one you've seen, then yeah, of course you're going to think that this is this is his style. It's it's the first one that I've seen, and so this is what I'm going to know him for. And then you go back and look at Lock Stock, and you go, well, he was just kind of repeating himself. So would I take it to to mean this is your favorite Guy Ritchie film then? Absolutely, with Rock and Roller being a, a pretty close second. 
Okay. He's he's a guy I'm I'm missing like half his filmography and rock and roll is one of them, but I, I agree with you that it does start to feel like diminishing returns and it it's impressive because I'll 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 take the ball and run with this, because I think I can weave some positivity here if my third point about the movie's cinematography is is both a blessing and a curse to me because I, I do think the movie does feel very assured and he does lay down his style and that t- to kind of round out this pulp fiction discussion, at least for now, is like that was the thing post pulp fiction is like every young Gen X filmmaker had to have a style and Tarantino's thing was pop culture and, you know, it was pop songs and ultra violence and snappy dialogue and, and Lockstock is taking so much of that. And, and Guy Ritchie is visually speaking, getting his Guy Ritchie style firmly into place in a way that doesn't feel like it's knockoff Tarantino. And maybe that's just the benefit of hindsight. We know now what a Guy Ritchie movie looks like, but when you watch this, it, it instantly fits in. So that's why I think it's, it's actually a pretty accomplished directorial debut so it's cinematography speaking i do find the movie visually striking i think the the sequence of is it ed who's the card shark yeah it's ed who plays it. when he loses and it, that that kind of you know using the camera to show like that phased out like holy crap what have i just done like that that's really good stuff and i think a lot of just like the fast cuts and it, it's a guy Ritchie film and i like it He's he's a movie, you know, people go back and forth on if he's a hack or if he's, he's whether wherever you fall on it, he's got his own distinct style. And I think it works here. Like, really, my beef with the movie is just how brown and yellow it is, which feels so petty. But it, it just drives me nuts when that happens in a movie and not really to a point because there's plenty of movies that I find ugly and it's kind of to a purpose. Things like, you know, Minority Report or Saving Private Ryan or Train Spotting, like, they're not pleasant movies to look at, but that's to a point. And here I'm just like, I, it doesn't feel like he's making a point because it, it just feels to me like if you're going to make this movie that's about bumbling gangsters and it's supposed to be a comedy, like it doesn't necessarily seem to me like you need this color palette that makes everything look ultra depressing and grimy. You know, I, I found that I really liked going to the weed dealer's flat just because we got some green in the movie every now and again. So you had said that this might actually have something to do with the different versions of the movie that are out. What's the deal with that? I, I do have a little insight into the color palette. It was a it was a practical decision. If I, I, I think it's funny there. I don't know if there still is, but at the at the time uh, at the British Independent Film Awards, uh, there was an award uh, called "Making the Most of Resources on a Limited Budget," which this film did win that award. Okay. Uh, so the the color palette the color palette is based on well we don't have the time money and resources to make sure that we're you know we we can't color correct this film we can't do any of that we can't wait for the light to be in our favor so we're going to shoot this film with with sepia lenses and we're going to use color gels and that way we can sort of control the continuity of it uh, the problem is is that. I so I have a long out of print director's cut version of the film which runs about 13 minutes longer which is like one of those films that I've been like handling with kid gloves because I don't want anything to happen to this disc to get broken <laughs> or scratched because I don't know if I can replace it and it is just a better version of the film as well and the color palette in it is actually very balanced whereas I've seen the US release I've seen the US theatrical cut and it is very very brown and yellow I don't know what happened when it came to the States and why it was color corrected or color timed in the way that it was, but it's, it's very sickly. It's almost, I can't, I can't watch it. I get to the scene, uh, where they introduce Tom and Nick the Greek 
And I'm like, no, I can't go any further. I can't do, I cannot yeah. look at this sickly yellow color. So I'm, I'm very grateful that I'm still hanging on to my out of print director's cut. Yeah. It sounds like I would have not had a third point <laughs> because it's like, it, that's really what, and it didn't turn me off the movie. Like I made it through the whole movie. I had a ton of fun with the plot and the people involved, but it, I, I figured it was probably something budgetary and I couldn't decide to use that to like knock the movie or not. Cause this happened a lot with these movies in the nineties as everybody was independent movies were back and the, the go-to was black and white film stock. Cause it was cheaper. And I couldn't decide on like, if I would have preferred lock stock had gone that route and just done everything in black and white, or if this was like, well, at least it's not another clerks or something, you know, where they're just another black and white movie. At least it's, it's something, but I just kept, being like this whole movie is just the first 20 minutes of the wizard of oz with these just dumb mumbling hoods and it was driving me crazy so it sounds like i need to get my hands on a, a, a copy of that director's cut the uk edition and this would free up a lot of gripes i have well i think it was released here in the states as well i think focus features uh at least at the time had the rights to it and they did put it out on dvd the i think they called it the locked and loaded director's edition and that was the full 120 minute cut which is honestly i have no idea i've tried to wrap my head around or find the reasons why they cut the film down because i mean 13 minutes at the end of the day is not a huge deal especially when you still have a film that's under that two and a half hour mark because i know that's the mark that a lot of studios get you know antsy yeah. about is if you go over two and a half hours you lose a screening a day well with this 13 minutes wasn't going to hurt you one way or the other and there's actually some really important information in that longer cut so for example i mean i don't i don't particularly like the way that it starts uh the theatrical starts with bacon on the street doing his big thing and it's a great intro into the movie and the director's cut it actually uh starts with ed having been arrested and he's explaining the rules of three card brag to a couple of cops which is is helpful but i don't know that it needs to come at the beginning of the film mm -hmm. the the biggest the most egregious cut to me is after JD, played by Sting, finds out that his son has screwed up royally, uh, he punches him out, and then we have uh, Alan, who works at the bar with JD, who most people recognize as being in Snatch. He was bricked off in that, played by Alan Ford. He explains to Ed why his dad is so upset and how he screwed up so badly in the sense that they hinted it in the theatrical cut, but JD and Hatchet Harry, they have quite the past. They played three-card brag together, and it was a game that went on for days. And it's, a, again, it's more sepia shot, very old world shot with quick cuts. It looks great. It's a scene of, of JD and, and Harry playing cards, and it gets to the point where the stakes are, as Alan said, a joke. And Harry wants to put him bang in trouble, put him in debt for the rest of his life. And then Harry turns over three aces next to unbeatable cards and JD starts weeping. And this is where the scene gets really good because after a while, the weeping turns to laughter. They turn over JD's cards. He's got three threes, the best possible mm. cards. And as Alan mm. says, the only time I have ever seen them. It's, it's a really great scene, and it adds a weight and a dimension that's missing from the theatrical cut. It's a real bummer. I, don't, I have no idea why they cut that. I don't either, because I heard about this side plot, and to me that I'm with you that I can't understand why they would cut that, because one of my gripes with the movie is I'm praising the movie because I really enjoy the plot, but to me, character is kind of what's missing here, and we can move into this conversation in a minute that... I, I tend to gravitate more to what you said earlier that I find the movies populated more by caricatures. And I don't I don't say that dispar disparagingly, but there's there's a lot of players involved in here and it's 
the movie's priority is not to flesh them out as human beings. But I do think that another part of the movie that's very enjoyable and some of the more memorable scenes revolve around, like, let me tell you about this one time this happened. And we, you know, we get it when Harry beat the guy to death with, you know, sex toy. And, and those are the parts of the movies everybody remembers. So it's like, I can't imagine why they cut this scene that while you were describing it, I was enthralled by. And I would love to see the history between these guys that also informs like what is the, the motivation behind like why you should care that these guys make this money and get out of trouble that this this bar that JD loves was paid for by taking this guy at cards. And now like this isn't just like, oh, he's this porn king mafia boss like what he's just a bad guy now it's like this is a vendetta he wants that bar he doesn't just want like property he doesn't want to get richer he wants that bar it to me yeah i'm with you i don't get why they would cut that scene yeah i think i think honestly if the director's cut was the only version out there we would have a, a stronger case maybe for a cine must over uh, a cine trust because definitely. there is a Most lot more definitely. depth. There's a, even there's even another scene where I mean, in the theatrical Big Chris, he's just kind of a heavy. You know, he does have a very emotional yeah. scene where he beats Dog to death for almost killing his son. But there's also there's a scene that adds more weight to his relationship with his son, where he, you know, uh, Barry the Baptist. There's a scene with with Barry the Baptist and and Hatchet Harry where Baptist he questions, Hey Harry, why are you sending Big Chris after this? Why are you putting him on this job? That's more money that he's ever gone after. Can we trust him with this? And Harry loses his rag at Barry the Baptist saying, who are you to question my judgment? I have full confidence in Big Chris. His relationship with his son is rock solid. And he's, as he says, he's never nicked a knicker in his life. If you dropped a tenor, he would search till he found you. He's, he's a guy with a real sense, even though he is a, a heavy and he collects money very violently, he does have a heart to him. And this is a scene that kind of explains that. He says, and heaven help, at the end of that scene, he says, heaven help anybody that ever touches that boy, which makes, mm. you know, when, yeah. it, towards the end, when, when Chris does beat Dog to death in the, in the door, it does make that, I mean, it's a hard scene to watch anyway, but knowing just how deeply he cares for his son just makes that, oh, it sends shiver, my, they, literally, the, ar the hairs on my arm are standing <laughs> up thinking about it. I'm so, I'm so sad that I watched the theatrical and not this version, because it sounds like it answers so many of my gripes, because... To, to go back to, we, sh we should use this to talk about your point about how you like the characters, because it's not that I dislike the characters, it's that they're always just like caricatures with just an extra thing tacked on to make them kind of interesting. So it's, it's all just these stereotypes of like the, the criminals and hoods movie, you know, like these are guys that are, these are boys trying to play at the big boy table, they're out of their depth. And here's an enforcer, but he's not just an enforcer, he has a kid. And this is the number two guy. But, you know, we'll show how he got his name. And these these are the bumbling thieves, but this one likes his perm. Like, there's always, it's always just like that archetype and then just like a little extra thing on top to help you remember him, but it doesn't like flesh them out as a person. And it, I think it works. Again, like I said, the, the plot is kind of the star here and I could keep everybody straight, but it does, I, I kind of long for scenes like the one you just described where like, Chris having a kid isn't just like this quirky thing that makes him more like, slightly more than just like the enforcer guy. Like it actually informs his character. The, the other one that drives me nuts is that, and maybe the director's cut addresses this too, but we get this um, tell don't show thing about how awesome Ed is at cards because he's great at reading people. And to my memory, that does not come back in the movie in any meaningful way ever again. And, and it doesn't even help him in the, you know, it doesn't even help him in the card game. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it. and I don't, 
I don't think the director's cut addresses that. I think you could make a pretty good case of for for showing a little bit of the backstory between Ed and JD and JD, you know, knowing that he built this bar on the back of playing cards, but he also knows how dangerous a world it can be. You know, it's it's yeah. it's not even 50-50 chance that you can turn it around because three card brag, as much as I still don't understand that game like Baccarat in the Bond <laughs> movies, I mean, it, to me, it is just about bluffing. So it's about being able to, right. like you said, to read people. It would have been nice maybe to have maybe one more flashback where we see JD and maybe little Ed and he, he finds Ed playing cards and he loses his mind at him saying, no, you can't turn, sure. you can never turn a card. You know, this is a dangerous world. And so of course, as a young man, the young Ed would maybe rebel against that and lean into it even more as we see him do. So it's just me hypothesizing, but a little scene like that, just that little bit would have gone a long way. It, it would make him more than like, Hey, Sting's in this movie too. You know, yeah. like he would, he would actually which, have which is, a, a character. Which is pretty much what it is, because really he's only in the movie because you know his wife loved the short and she thought he'd be great in it, which is not a bad thing. I I love I love Sting as an actor. I love him in uh, I love him in Quadrophenia. I still haven't seen David Lynch's Dune, but I have heard he is one of the better things in it. Sure, and he's he's got a mean stare in Lockstock too. Like he's he's a welcome addition. I found trying to think of my reasons. One that I was dangerously close to making official was that. The, the side cast, as, as much as I'm bagging on them for being caricatures plus one little trait, I, I like seeing all of them. I kind of like those little quirks. I'm not super sold on like the the quartet of main guys here. Again, it's not that I don't like them, but it's like I don't really know enough about them. Like there's there's not enough of an interchange there that makes it necessary to have four of these guys. I, I think like the guy who stands out the most is Jason Statham as Bacon, but I don't know that I could even tell you like what Bacon's deal is. Like he stands out because now it's Jason Statham and we know him, but it's not necessarily like a breakout performance. You know, to me, to me, the charm is like I said, these are just four kids. They want to play at the big boy table and they get in over their heads, and and the rest of the plot kind of revolves around like in this classical comedy structure of just everything working out regardless of what they do. It's kind of embodied by that amazing montage where we have breakers boys in the van rolling over and the guys next door waiting in the apartment with shotguns and in the middle are the four guys just leisurely driving their way home telling dirty stories to each other which is one of my favorite scenes i i do think that richie did a tremendous job of building the suspense and the tension we have that great little piece composed by uh john murphy the the zorba the greek i think the the piece is called but um mm. I'm, I'm glad you brought up Statham specifically. Because, you know, 20 years after the fact, we get to look back at this movie and go, holy shit, that's Jason Statham. And he is, you know, one of the biggest action stars in the world. You know, he's cast his lot in with people like Stallone and Schwarzenegger. And, you know, of course, he's in all those all those expendable movies with those guys. Uh, and, and rightfully so. I'm not a massive fan of his movies, but he does have a physicality that is something to be reckoned with and something that he even shows off in this movie in the celebration scene at the bar where he does that backflip. But Statham is, of those four, I think he is the least developed. I mean, his backstory was actually cut from the script. They called him Bacon. Uh, uh, as written, they called him Bacon because he was arrested so much. He was at the cop shop so much, they just assumed he was a snitch in one of the cops, so they started calling him Bacon. <laughs> It's good. But yeah, yeah, I'm with you that it's like if he's supposed to be like the hothead or something like that, that could come through it, again. Like, I don't I don't want to get bogged down into it. But, but to me, I, I have so much more fun with Roy Breaker or with Nick the Greek or any of the guys next door, or the, the weed dealers again, you know, 
the side characters to me are like the the fun here. I also do love those two uh those two northern guys, the two thieves. I know they're not developed as well as they could be, <laughs> but their their interactions with Barry the Baptist are among my favorites. And when they do rob the house, mm. man, I was racking my brain trying to find a favorite character or even rank the characters and I just I couldn't do it or rank my favorite scenes, but definitely one of the strongest contenders is when they're robbing the stately home. Yeah. And and one of them has the lines of the other one. What are you doing? You're burning people's feet. I'm trying to find out where they keep their money. You idiot. Can't you see? These people have got no money. They can't even afford new furniture, which I think oh, one of the... <laughs> that is yeah, that's, gold. That's Comedy the thing. Is like, that's, that's like a Pulp Fiction type line that totally works. It doesn't seem like they're trying too hard. It, it is legitimately funny. So that's why to me, this is kind of a more successful... Pulp Fiction knockoff is like that dialogue is is fantastic. I really like even like you're saying when they meet with um, the Baptist and when he walks away. I can't remember the exact insults, but you know Barry's walking away like, oh my gosh, these northern guys, and they cut to the the guys and they're like, oh these southern dudes. Yeah, it's a uh, uh, northern northern monkeys and southern fairies. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I thought that was a really good line. So so let's let's keep talking character because. You think that some of these people do go beyond caricature, if if I heard you right, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think that... I love Barry the Baptist. I I really... I get who this guy is right away. You know, he's he could just easily devolve into just, oh, he's a random enforcer, but he is, he is much more of a right-hand man to Hatchet Harry. We do see him uh, helping him out with the game. He's doing the little Morse code thing so that, you know, Harry can know what everybody else has at the table because he's behind that that two-way mirror. I don't know. It's I can see it's it's definitely going to be difficult to to make the case that some of these guys are more than caricature. I do I do see your point of view, but I've part of part of my problem is I think that I've I've seen the film so many times. I must have seen this film easily 25 times. And so it's like every time I see it, it's like it's like meeting up with old friends again, even though I know the story, I know the lines. I you know, know I, I feel like I know who these people are because I've I've revisited it so many times, which is a thin reason to say that they're not caricatures, but it was the same thing that I felt when um T two Train Spotting came out, the sequel to Train Spotting. It's like, oh my god, I haven't seen these guys in X number of years. It felt like going home and seeing old friends again. Mm-hmm. And that's where it ties into my nostalgia factors. Like I just watching these guys doing the things that they do hearing the things that they say it's like slipping into a warm bath for me which is 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 not really an answer to your question i know about a caricature versus fleshed out characters but i i don't know i i feel like i know them who who was like your go-to back when you you first saw it and you were watching this like did you have a favorite a guy you latched onto? uh rory breaker was definitely up there rory breaker and nick the greek i love their interactions uh adam and i the the thing that we would quote the most was actually uh rory's two and i i have their names here um uh stephen colander ferrier who plays lenny and elwin chopper david who plays nathan he's the guy that's f you funny man that's the thing that Adam and I would quote most to each other. Oh. Whenever you know, one or the other one of us was giving each other the hard time, it would be "fuck you, funny man." <laughs> when um, you mentioned you saw this movie like way too young, do you know like roughly what age? Adam and I would have been thirteen, twelve or thirteen, maybe. Okay, Th- this is not to disparage like your experience, but to me, this seems like a movie that plays great to thirteen-year-old boys. Oh, absolutely! Like, so it's... Fight Club, Pulp Fiction, all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah no, it. It taps into call that a slightly. A spade. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not. 
I don't I don't want to use the word it's not it's not taboo but you feel like you're being let into something you know you it's like uh it's like your first taste of alcohol when you're a kid you know you're being let into this larger world that you know previously was only open to adults and now you're kind of in on the joke you know what I mean yeah and it's like it's it's a dude's movie you know and and that's part of what you were saying earlier like it's it's a movie about gangsters doing gangster stuff and that's the pleasure of it it, it doesn't go much deeper than that but it it works on like a satisfying level and it's it's pretty funny. It gets just like ludicrous the way, you know, these shotguns keep like switching hands and coming back into the fray. It, it's a movie that like if you were if you were kind of trying to practice like screenwriting and if you were trying to focus on like, well, just ha how do I get like a plot to work and how do I be efficient just with what's happening? And don't worry too much about like characterization. Like this would be a good one to kind of isolate that out because it doesn't feel like anything happens overly coincidentally i think all the coincidences are kind of like laid out in the opening of the movie and i've kind of always said like i think that a movie has like 10 minutes to lay out like whatever rules it wants to and i'll kind of buy it and then from there like then it's it's harder for me to buy like coincidences but they do a lot of that stuff they they establish like they live next door to these gangsters and they can hear what they're saying through the walls and these shotguns you know nick the greek is has got his fingers in all the pies so it, it makes sense that these shotguns would wind up in his hands and he'd sell them and he also doesn't seem to be particularly good at um bargaining so it makes sense that he would have no idea how much the guns are worth so i i find out that stuff actually works really well like i said i think this would be like a blast if i was a teenager or, or an, if i was a teenager and i was having like a sleepover like this one would be a super fun movie to watch yeah, and it would like like myself. It'd be uh, it's a movie that I as as at that age you found yourself coming back to and wanting to to have that same feeling of being in on the joke over and over again and and quoting it mm. as I said as nauseum at nauseum to your friends, which is like I said this is what we did. I want to stay with the the gangsters. I mean, I like I like I kept talking about. I found myself struggling to find to find a favorite scene and to find you know, who my favorite characters are. As I said, I, I love Rory and I love his two henchmen, but I find at this age now, the guys that I'm latching onto are the guys uh, harvesting the weed, uh, you know, Winston and, and Jay and <laughs> Willie and all of those guys. Like as I, as I'm becoming, I don't know, my wife might argue with, with me and say that I'm still pretty high strung, but as I'm, as I'm getting older and finding myself to be a little less, I think I'm a little less high strung. <laughs> and and so that sort of relaxed attitude I can kind of relate to a little bit more than I could say at, at 13 or 15 or whatever. But I love the scene where these two worlds collide very violently, the world of these laid back uh, pot dealers and the world of these very intense gangsters. And the gangsters are stuck in the cage and all they have is an air rifle. And I think, and I don't know, I still couldn't, I still couldn't choose a favorite line, but I think the most iconic line in the film is, can everybody stop getting shot? That's a good one. <laughs> it's brilliant. That that whole interaction where they come in and find the cage locked is, I, it's, it's great. I mean, that's, that's great, really, really great writing to have these two worlds collide in the way that they do. I dug it. That, that might have been a favorite sequence of mine. And it, another thing is the movie's relationship with women is so problematic because there's two of them and one of the female characters her whole thing is that she's invisible and nobody notices her but I, I, the movie does spark like a little juvenile joy in me because man when she emerges from under a blanket that is the same fabric as her sweat like they're doubling down on the payoff that like she is invisible and when she just like pops out and picks up that gun and just blows everyone away it was kind of like a 
I laughed and I was kind of cheering. I was like, oh, good. She gets to be the one that's going to just like settle the yeah, fight which, after it's which, been this ludicrous battle between guys locked in a cage getting shot at with a BB gun. That, that is a great way to turn that trope on the head. I, I definitely hear that argument of, well, there's not really room for women in this movie. It's it's a dude movie. It's these naughty gangsters. And we don't, we don't think of, of women as necessarily being associated with that world. But that is one of the great payoffs if not the best payoff in the movie is that she gets to stand up and have a moment where she holds her own with the guys even though she doesn't to my recollection doesn't have any dialogue in the film she just no. picks up the brain the brain gun and goes to town which is oh could you have not brought anything smaller <laughs> I've, I've been restraining yeah. myself i've been trying not to gush and just quote the whole movie at you but that one's so good I know. The, could you have not and, brought and right anything smaller yeah, right before we um, we started recording, like you did an amazing and immaculate verbatim impression of Statham's opening sales pitch on the jewelry, and I was kind of just sitting in awe of it. So your your expertise is unquestioned. Oh, I, I I've spent I've spent many a long night practicing Bacon's speech from the beginning, <laughs> just so I can have you know I can have my nerdy movie thing movie guy thing to do at parties. It's it's a it's a good speech actually. I think it's a good way to open the movie, and maybe that's why Statham stucks out is because he's he's a pretty charming guy there, and it's it's fun to watch him kind of work with Ed to to work the crowd. I like how he comes in. Ten, that's a steal. I'll take one. Are there any of your other points you feel we haven't able to talk through? Well, I I feel like something that we we didn't talk about, and and when we think about Tarantino, if we're to continue that comparison, we th we talk about him in terms of his soundtracks as well. Like his soundtracks yes. are legendary, and this is another point where I think the film holds its own. The soundtrack in this film, to me, feels very much like Pulp Fiction. When I when I hear those songs outside of the movie, I instantly relate them to where they where they come in the movie. Stuff like another great example, American Graffiti. Stand by Me, movies mm -hmm. like that, where mm -hmm. the soundtrack is a much is as much a part of the the time and place and the feel of the film. I may have come to the movie too late to appreciate that because that was another thing I thought of when comparing it to Pulp Fiction. And to me, it was like, oh, it's doing the thing. It's just pop songs to violent gangster stuff. Um, but you're you're a much better versed music aficionado than I am, so I'll, I'll defer to you. To me, that was kind of one of the pale imitations. But again, it was something like, eh, it works. Well, I love I love the cheekiness of ending the film with uh, that song um, by Pete Wingfield, the uh, eighteen with a bullet. I love that. I just I love mm -hmm. the cheekiness of the title of that, and then uh, the balls to use not one but two James Brown songs is great. I really appreciate that both both the boss and the payback. Yeah, those were the only two songs that I like could tell you like are like I'm sitting here right now trying to remember any of the songs, and the only ones I can remember are the James Brown ones. Well, I, I know part of the argument is a lot of people feel that the film, other than obvious reasons, feels dated because it opens with uh, a Britpop song. It was an ocean color scene who were somewhat popular at the time, and they were uh, um, one in a many of a long line of Oasis uh, imitators, you know, opening mm -hmm. with that 100 Miles. I think the song's called 100 Miles City by Ocean Color Scene, and that's, I, again, most people in the States have probably never heard of Ocean Color Scene. In fact, I, uh, speaking of Oasis, I was very... Uh, very abruptly uh, reminded of the fact that I am now in my 30s when I mentioned Oasis to somebody who was, you know, late teenager, 17 or 18, and they looked at me sideways like, who? <laughs> I went, oh, come on, please don't tell me. They're like, no, I've never heard Wonderwall. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> well, we, fi we finally escaped that being the go-to acoustic song you pick up. I mean, who, who hasn't been at that party and heard, you know, the three semi-drunk girls over there in the corner screaming Champagne Supernova at the top of their lungs?
Yeah, yeah, I'm with you, but you know we're the same age, so <laughs> it's time to move on. And, and you know, really, how dare a movie from the late '90s just show that it's from the late '90s? Unforgivable. Oh, absolutely. Movies belong to their time and place. What is this? Um, yeah, man, I've I've really got kind of nothing else to say. But if there's any any other points you feel have not been made or anything you wanted to talk about a little more, uh, well, do you have a? You asked me if I had any characters that I latched onto. Was there anybody? That that you found yourself emotionally invested in, uh, I would never. I wouldn't say I was emotionally invested in any character, because because again, I I got a lot of enjoyment out of the movie out of these people being caricatures with like a plus one trait, and just kind of appreciating like how they wove throughout the movie and that I could keep track of them. I don't know that there was ever a moment where like I empathize with that character. Or I wanted that character to get what they wanted. You know, that's to me, that's not what the movie's trying to do. So on, I, I hate to leave you hanging, but honestly, no, do you? No, that's, that's no, no, that's all good, man. I, I'm, I'm emotionally invested in, in everybody. I love everybody. I, I can't, I just, I would be loath to try and pick myself a favorite. And again, I can't even, I can't even pick a favorite scene. I didn't even mention when Hatchet Harry meets his end and they use that little piece of music, that Ennio Morricone for a few dollars yeah. more piece, which is a very, oh, it's very, very cheeky. That is fun. I, I, that, I, that was pretty I fun. really admire the balls of using that. Well, well, maybe, maybe that makes my point too. Cause like by the end of the movie, when like, literally almost everybody you've met is dead. Like, I think it's like our foreign main guys, Chris and his son, uh, JD, I think everybody else we have like come to know and love is dead. Or the the, uh, the weed dealers make it out too, but uh, like you know half half of your cast of characters is is are lying in a bloody heap by the end of this movie. And I was totally cool with it. I was like, yeah, this fits. This fits like again like that. Um, in a very classical sense, that comedy structure that you, nothing really changes and like actions are inconsequential. I I kind of admired the movie for for sticking to that and in the way that's a movie that I think is much more accomplished. We talked about on the show The Big Lebowski. It's the same thing as like you go through this whole adventure and like by the end it's like well none of it really had to happen but you had a good time right. Um, And and that was to a lesser degree that's how I felt by the end of this one is it was just kind of funny to to see how the pieces were set up to lead to just these outrageous bombastic gunfights. But yeah, by the end like people are lying massacred and I was just like oh that's kind of funny. So that doesn't speak well for my ability to emotionally imprint on any of them. No, no, I get it. I, I, I'm pretty happy with where we're at. I think we've, we've covered a lot of what I wanted to cover. One thing I do want to drive home, though, if, if we haven't convinced anybody to watch this, uh, and if you are uh, easily persuaded by how films do at award time, this film was nominated for some BAFTAs. No kidding. Which is the, the British version of the Academy Awards. This film, actually, it won the Audience Award at the BAFTAs, which I think is something... Uh, the Oscars could do with having adopting something like that, uh, but it yeah. it uh, was also nominated for best British film and best editing. It, it lost uh, it lost best British film to Elizabeth and lost editing to Shakespeare in Love. So again, the very very dry period piece things that we do, but at least sure. our Academy recognized this new up and comer and and recognized the the great work that he did. And I'll respect that for as much as I've said against the movie, I've I've really enjoyed the movie, but it, it is kind of what we've talked about. It's a fun movie. It's like a I need something that's just cheeky and fun. I don't really want to think a whole lot, but I don't want to completely turn my brain off because you do have to have some brain power to keep up with like cause and effect in this movie and how plot threads weave in and out. But I, I do appreciate kind of the backstory behind this movie getting picked up again to close out that last Pulp Fiction conversation we're going to have that. 
it's another movie that was kind of saved by like celebrities stepping in like at the right place, right time. So we had Trudy Styler, who's um, married to Sting. She's kind of the one who found the screenplay and found Hard Case and said like, hey, we should make this. And if I'm not mistaken, in, when they were screening the movie for studios, trying to get someone to buy it, she had like convinced because she knew Tom Cruise. She was like, you should swing by this screening and pump it up. So Tom Cruise basically did what um, Ed does for Bacon in the beginning of the movie. He comes in and just like, oh, this movie's great. You guys would be dumb if you didn't buy it. This is the best movie I've ever seen. And all of a sudden, everyone's like pulling out their wallets. Like, I want the rights to this movie. And I, I, I think that's actually pretty great. Okay, man, anything else you want to say? Spoilers? No, I'm, I'm quite happy. I was very happy that uh, you indulged me in, in my discussion of this film with you. I'm, I thank you for, for having me on to, to share some nostalgia with you. No, I really appreciate the conversation. I'm sorry to dump on a movie, especially that is so so special to you and your friend. Like I, I, I really did enjoy the movie. It's more just justifying. Like I can't get I can't get it on that cinema list for me. But maybe maybe listeners are going to feel different. You know, they they'll get the final say. Even if you had dumped on it, I would have respected you, and it would have been a challenge for me to try and bring you over to the dark side. <laughs> you're you're too kind. No, it it's been a, tons of fun talking this with you and in Bruges with Adam. Like I've been getting I've been wanting to watch gangster movies lately actually. In fact, I was so desperate for it when we when Adam and I talked about in Bruges, I made my double feature with that, Lock Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, and they they don't have a ton in common. I was kind of just like, I want more of like this low-level English mob movie. Like that just sounds so fun right now. So this this really scratched my itch. Um, that's a trend I'm not going to repeat now as we give our double feature recommendations. Uh, I'm not going to just reverse it and say, oh, I'd put it with In Bruges. I got something different this time around, but I'll let you go first, Ian. If, if it's a movie night and you're going to have Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels playing, but you gotta, you gotta pair it up with some other movie in a double feature, what movie would you pick? Man, I, I went back and forth on this forever. And if you'll indulge me, I have, I have quite the list, but I will give you a definitive one. Right, yeah. You, um, I think, you can give I, I runners think, up. You just got to have the Yeah, no, definitely. So I think I think the easy answer is probably Snatch if you want to see Guy sure. Ritchie just double barrel back to back these crazy sort of over the top gangster films that weave multiple narratives and multiple characters. That's the easy one. I'm not the biggest fan of Snatch. I've been kind of cooling to it a lot over the years. It is very derivative and I don't know what Brad Pitt thinks he's doing in that film, but that accent is just <laughs> ludicrous. Uh, it's not it's not a real accent. That was just him. Oh, well, you, wait, we need you to do an Irish accent, but you can't do one. So just do your best and we'll just call it a quote unquote <laughs> pikey accent. Um, I, I also love the idea of pairing it with Layer Cake. Matthew Vaughn was a mm. uh, producer on this film and has gone on to have a great directing career of his own. And Layer yeah. Cake is a fantastic film that like is absolutely proves the reason why Daniel Craig should have been James Bond. So to have those two back to back producer and director. That would make a great double feature. Uh, Pulp Fiction, again, we talked a lot about that. That would be a great double feature, too. You could have both sides of the pond and and those types of films to see it from the American perspective and then the British perspective as well. Um, Long Good Friday is my final runner-up. I, I, you've probably heard me talk about Long Good Friday on, on episodes of 1001 by 1. Absolutely love that film. Bob Hoskins is the man. And a lot of people said that Lockstock was... You know, they, they, they say that there hadn't been a good British gangster film since Lockstock, so it would be great to see the generational divide, you know, the the end of one era and the beginning of another. But my, again, thank you for indulging me with so many uh, potential double features, but my, my actual one is kind of a weird one. I would pair this with the original 1969 Italian job with Michael Caine. Okay, 
I I actually can kind of maybe see where your head's out already, but like get get it on record so we can actually follow like the definitive thread. Well, there are over the top characters in both of them. You know, there's a lot of of comedy that runs through them. They're both uh, sort of high concept capers, and uh, it's the ending. It's that great cliffhanger ending on on both films, which just leaves you i don't know the first time i saw the italian job i was again very young i was about this age 13 or 14 and i stood up i I cheered i just just so happy with that great ambiguous and i feel like it earned that ending in the same way that lockstock earns its ending as well Mm. of tom hanging off the bridge having dropped the guns but the guns haven't fallen into the river and then the guys are trying to call them because he's found out how much the guns are. That's great. One of, a great cliffhanger in the same way that Italian Job, again, another caper, has that spectacular ending. I think one of the 10 greatest film endings of all time, the bus hanging off the cliff, all the gold is about to go out the back of the bus and Michael Caine with his incredible delivery of the line, hold on a second, lads, I've got an idea. <laughs> That is super good. It makes me so happy that Michael Caine, who we know today is the wise grandfatherly figure, it makes me so happy. Like he's he's got a career very early on as like the British gangster with like things like that and Get Carter. Like that brings me no end of joy. Um, you also bring up a question I forgot. I wanted to ask you in spoilers for Lockstock. Does Tom drop the guns or not? You know, I'm just. <laughs> I I would like to think he does. Same. I I'm kind of I want to I want to go with the downer ending. I don't want to give Tom that satisfaction. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. And and again, like in that just typical comedy structure, to be like, oh, it's the same as it began. They're broke. Yeah, ain't, yeah. You going all gone all, but at least they're yeah, not. No, like, at least they're not dead. A Cohen Brothers ending. Yeah. Yeah. I I was just curious your interaction. Um, that does sound like an incredibly fun double feature, man. Um, I've, I've got a a weird one and I, I'll admit, I kind of committed to this one like super early on. I I watched my double feature movie before I even watched Lockstock and they're they're very loosely connected, but I'm just going to stand with them. Um, my double feature recommendation is 2012's Killing Them Softly uh, by Andrew Dominic starring Brad Pitt. Um, I, I went to this, I actually had never seen it and I had heard great things. So I went into it kind of with uh, the connection here as a loose thread is like, this is what happens when you, you mess with the mob or you, you, you knock off a poker party. Um, wildly different. But this, you know, if Lockstock is like when things go wrong and it's really, really fun, killing them softly is like when you when you take money from criminals and things go horribly wrong. Uh, much heavier movie, uh, definitely about stuff very much in, uh, involved with the economics of the United States, this idea of, um, you know, hope and change that the Obama administration brought with it is kind of weaved through this story of these two guys that rob a, a, a poker game that's run by like a big criminal syndicate. And uh, they are, I, I guess they kind of have more in common with Lockstock because there's a Chris figure. Brad Pitt is a mob enforcer that is is called in to kind of take care of business. But yeah, there's very few laughs you're going to have with killing them softly. But I thought it actually made Kind of a nice dichotomy double feature to have Lockstock on one end that's just super fun and then Killing Them Softly, which is really heavy, but very confidently directed. Um, Andrew Dominic made one of my 
favorite Westerns of recent years, which you know, Ian, I'm a giant Western fan. The assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford is freaking amazing. I, I wouldn't put Killing Them Softly quite on that level, but it, it definitely has like that slow-paced assurance. Tons of characters in it that I think are very mem- memorable. Richard Jenkins is in it, and he's always great. We've got a great Ray Liotta performance in a little while, and it's always great to see that because I always feel like Ray Liotta should be in more stuff. So it's it's kind of a weird one, definitely uh, shifting tones. I definitely put Lockstock as like the second movie in the double feature to buoy up spirits, but I'll stick with Killing Them Softly. I'm super jazzed you went with that. Yeah, it, it was it was a good time, and that one's streaming on Netflix at the moment, so it's pretty easy to get to if you haven't seen it. I I recommend it. I had a good time, and and I'm glad I stuck with it. If I had known uh, Matthew Vaughn was a producer on Lockstock, I probably would have gone that route. I probably would have gone after um, Layer Cake or is it Layer Cake or Pound Cake? Yeah, Layer, kind of, layer Cake. I've never seen it, so that would have been my go-to. Is I would have gone for that instead. I th- I think you're going to like it a lot. A great supporting cast as well. And that Michael Gambon gets to be, I think, awesome. the best I mean, he's been you don't in even years. Have to, you don't even have to finish that sentence. Just say his name. I'm there, dude. I'm there. Um, and early cool. early so, Tom Hardy. Sweet. Sweet. Oh, man. I got to check it out. Because I'm a big Matthew Vaughn fan as well. So cool. Those are those are our recommendations. I have got Killing Them Softly. Ian is going with... Uh, remind me again. You gave me five movies and I'm not remembering which one you actually <laughs> stuck with. <laughs> <laughs> too many Italian job all, all of them uh, the the original Italian job let's not get that mixed up with that abomination that was that Marky Mark movie man you know I've got fond memories of that but I haven't revisited it in a while so I don't I don't I know we're I know we're at the end here but just to, to cap it off I did see a and a with Edward Norton when he was here at uh at the Seattle International Film Festival about 10 years ago he was promoting uh Leaves of Grass uh, where he plays twins in that, and they they opened it up to questioning, and somebody asked, you know, what what's the film that you're you're proudest of, or what's the film when you look at it, you can say that's my greatest performance. And he he took the very diplomatic route, and he didn't want to name one film film, film specifically, sure. but he did say uh, there is one film that I am not proud of. I won't name it because I have a good relationship with the studio, but it was a contractual obligation. It was the Italian job. <laughs> That's a bummer because I remember he's actually pretty fun in it as just a slimy. Oh, SOB. he's great in it. I'll have to, I'll have to check it back out because it's got Statham. Maybe we should do that because we could, we could have the connection. You know, Donald Sutherland's in Venice, much like he is in Don't Look Now, a movie you and I have talked about. I think you just locked yeah, in would, your next appearance on this show. I would love to come back <laughs> in and and talk about both Italian jobs. <laughs> I'll I'll keep you something more um, dignified. Um. Okay, but yeah, that's a great double feature recommendation and you give giving people a lot of ideas for what they can throw at us. So for everybody who's listening, we also want to hear what you'd put in a double feature with Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. So make sure you're checking our social media pages on Thursday, the 25th. We're going to ask you what you would pair up with it. And then the next day, hang with us because on Friday, June 26th, you guys are going to decide if Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels is going to officially be a Cinemust, Cinetrust, or Cinebust. Ian and I say Cinetrust, but we can be outvoted. Uh, so I'm excited to see what people think of this. This is a movie that I know has a, a large cult following, but I've honestly like never really talked a lot about it with other people. So I'm excited to see where audience reaction is on this one. Because uh, I, I think there might be enough love out there to maybe get it as a cinema must. We'll find out this Friday. Um, Ian, man, thank you so much for for bringing this one to the show. I'm glad we could do one that is uh, that is on our list. Not, not eligible for your show, but still in this conversation of the 1001 Movies book. 
Awesome pick, man. Great to talk English movies with you. Although I might next time you're on push you to go outside the country. Maybe we go uh, across the pond to France or something. Yeah, no, let's do it. I mean, I we've not had the greatest of luck in France recently with uh, with Breathless and uh, the Gleaners and I, but I'm I'm happy to give it another shot. We'll find one. We will find it. Um, I also thank you for not rolling your eyes when I mentioned the pond to refer to the channel because I know the pond is actually the Atlantic Ocean. My apologies. Well, it's a, it's only going to get violent if you call me a limey. Okay, yeah, I'd, I'd never do that. I'd never have the guts. <laughs> um, dude, thank you so much for lending your talents to this show one more time. A Thousand and One by One. It's a fantastic podcast. Where can people find it? Uh, we launch out of Podomatic. Find us on Stitcher, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, all the places that you get podcasts. Uh, if you can't find it, hit Adam up on Facebook. Hit me up on Twitter. We will we will get you sorted. Absolutely. I cannot recommend it enough to those of you who are not already following them. Awesome lineup of shows. Almost 80 episodes that you can go dive into right now. An episode on Andre Rublev dropping this Friday. So please go check out Adam and Ian on 1001 by 1. Um, so we will wrap that up. Ian, thanks a ton for coming on to the show, man. Any last words you'd like to say to the nice people? Uh, no, thank you for having me. And uh, buy one, you better buy one. Because if you can't see value here today, you're not up here shopping, you're up here shoplifting. <laughs>